The day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. On today's episode, we have Bradley Collins, author of My Father Was D.B. Cooper. Brad believes his father, Jack Collins, was Cooper. Jack pulled it off with the help of his brother, Bud. We recorded this in Brad's car, so you'll probably hear some background noise because of that. Brad's story is really awesome, and I really enjoyed talking to him. I hope you will enjoy my conversation with Bradley Collins. Well, let's uh, let's get started. Okay. Jumping Jack Cash. <laughs> yeah, that was his nickname. Jumping Jack Flash in the in the 1960s became Jumping Jack Cash in the 1970s, according to his skydiving friends. Anyway. Yeah. And so Jack was born in Canada. Yes, he was a Canadian citizen, born Canadian, but he had dual citizenship <clears throat> by joining the U.S. Air Force. Later on, they made him a citizen. I guess. Kind of how it worked, I guess. Did he do any jumping in the military? No, he didn't start jumping until 1962 out of Snohomish. Snohomish, Washington. On his second jump, he broke his leg. Did a uh, compound fracture to his leg. His second jump, huh? Yeah. He got a cast on for eight months. He swore he'd never jump again as long as he lived. As soon as the cast was off, he went out and started jumping. <laughs> he called it the sport of ju- the sport of broken bones. Well, he broke a bunch of bones doing it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Through the years, he broke arms, wrists, broke his heel in one place, broke his leg a couple of times. Broken arms and wrists seem to be pretty common. As soon as the cast was off, he'd go back out there. He's kind of like kind of like Evil Knievel, except he was a skydiver. That's what we're looking at. And so you think that your dad, Jack Collins, and your uncle, Bud Collins, planned the, planned the whole thing just shortly before? Uh, I don't think it was shortly. But they definitely planned it out and did it. I know there are probably people who might doubt that. Maybe Steve, uh, Mr. Smith out there in Eatonville and a few others. But the truth is, yeah, I've always known it was my dad. It evolved. Events both before, during, and after the hijacking event are all in the book. And it all led up to, uh, to my mother and I pretty much knowing that he did it. And I've never wavered from that. Every time I see somebody come along that's a quote-unquote suspect, 
Uh, first of all, I have to chuckle to myself because I know they're not a, really a suspect and it's just a matter of time before usually they find that they weren't. The day before Thanksgiving, your dad left. The day before Thanksgiving, 1971. That was the day of the hijack. Right. And that's the day he left to go to Battleground to stay with Bud? Is that what he said? No. He, what he said is that there wasn't anything going on for Thanksgiving. And he told my mom, I'm going to drive out and visit Bud. And she said, what? You're not going to be here for Thanksgiving? And there was silence. And he said, I might be making a parachute jump in the next couple of days, depending on the weather. And she said, what's with the suit? Because he was wearing a suit. A nice suit, actually. And there was silence, and he said, I might stop off at the office in downtown Seattle on the way out. I don't want Mr. Jennings to see me if I'm not dressed properly. And that's something that he never did. If his habit was to go out to the parachute center, it was never his habit to stop by the office on, on the way out. So it didn't sound right to my mother. It didn't sound right to me either when I was sitting in the kitchen listening to it. And my mom had to use the restroom, so she told my dad to stick around. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When she came out of the bathroom about two or three minutes later, Dad had went past me in the kitchen with a determined look on his face, went out to his car, and jumped into his car and fired it up and backed out and took off. And that was the morning of the hijack in Wednesday, November 24th, 1971. I was 14 years old, just going on 15, I think. And, uh, Dad didn't come home until Sunday the 28th, and he never called, according to my mother, for the entire time. But I came home from the ferry dock that evening, the night of the hijacking, pretty well convinced that Dad was the guy that they had on the plane. The plane was sitting on the tarmac in Seattle. When I came home, I turned on the TV, the house was empty, Mom was downstairs doing laundry, and I knew that. It was a thing that she did. And so I do as I turned the stations on the TV. The Cooper hijacking was on every single station. There was only five or six TV stations in those days. We got the Canadian station as well. It was on that. And, uh, and they were describing him as a, a businessman. Of course, there was no photographs. And they were describing him as a guy in a suit, middle-aged, he wanted parachutes and money. They were refueling the plane. They weren't talking too much about all that. That was kind of stuff that was on the radio a little earlier in the day. But um, finally I got my mother up in front of the TV set. The jet started to take off. And she, had, she took off at one point. I got her back in front of the TV. I said, I want you to see this. And finally she said, I wish your father was here to see this as the jet was taking off. And I said, Mom, Mom. She said, what? She looked at me and I said, I think Dad's the guy on the plane. That morning she said, your father's up to something. Well, she was right. She turned around and looked at the TV. She said, oh, no. 
very astonished. So that's all in the book. That's part of the story. And while it was on the TV, you guys suspected it was your father. Well, I, I definitely did, and I let Mom know about it. She was astonished by it, and I'm pretty sure that from that point on, she never lost track of that. Yeah, we were definitely uh, in agreement, but we had more conversations later that night. Because this came on uh, the news. It was took up the better part of an entire newscast. The plane had landed in Reno. They said he'd jumped. There was armed men all around. The live feed looked like the sheriff or something finally got up and made a statement. He said he was in charge. He said the man had jumped with an undetermined amount of cash somewhere around the Portland area, uh, Columbia River, something like that. <clears throat> and that they were going to find him. They thought he was deceased. And they were going to have a large manhunt and they were going to find him no matter what. My mom didn't want to hear that he was deceased. She got up and turned the TV set off right after he said it. She followed me into the kitchen, and I was brewing a cup of tea. She came around the corner, and I got a glimpse of her face. She looked very worried, very astonished. And she said, Bradley, do you think your father's done this? I said, it sure sounds like dad to me. <laughs> she said, I think he's done it too. He might be hurt or worse. I said, you got that right. I'm worried about him, she said. I said, well, she said, do you think Uncle Bud is involved? I said, I doubt it, even though I did think he was involved. I repeat, I did think he was involved. I had thought about it that night, and I determined I wasn't going to own up on him being involved because I didn't want to worry Mom any more than I had to. I told Mom I thought Bud was too smart to get involved in something like that. But either way, I'm going to bed. I started heading downstairs. I had to open the anteroom door, set my cup of tea down by where the phone was. When I did that, she said, one more thing, Brad. I said, what? Before you go downstairs and go to bed, one more thing. I said, what is it? I said, if he calls, wake me up. <laughs> I don't care if it's 3 or 4 in the morning. I want to hear what he has to say. She said, before you go to bed, I want to tell you one more thing. I go, what? She said, don't say anything to anybody. In the next couple of days, if your friends come, come around, which one of them did, Muggsy, <laughs> Start asking questions about your father, which he did. Tell him you don't know anything, which I did. <laughs> that was all part of the scenario over the next couple of days. One of the neighbor's kids came around, and when he came around, I knew he was fishing. So I just messed around with my newspaper bundles and told him I was kind of busy, and if he thought Dad was Cooper, more power to him. Because <laughs> he did ask me. I just chuckled and said, yeah, right. But anyway... Uh, I think later on it was his father that called the FBI and ratted Dad off. And the guy's driving off without his lights on. Hey, that's a safety violation. Anyway, yeah, that's part of the lore. I think I don't want to say too much. I might give away the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> and you asked your dad point blank when he came home on Sunday. Yes, I did. Dad came home on Sunday the 28th. Um, 
<clears throat> he wasn't there for the weekend, and he normally was, and he was every other weekend for years on end. Never missed Thanksgiving with his family. It's the only time that anybody can ever remember Dad not being around for Thanksgiving. But, yeah, well, we had more conversations, my mom and I, besides that. But on Sunday, he hadn't apparently called for this entire five days. And I didn't have him around to help me carry the huge bundles of newspapers in his car, so I had to mule him. So I was really tired. It was in the afternoon, probably about 1.30. Dad pulled into the driveway. He had left five days before. I said, Mom, Dad's here. He just pulled into the driveway. She said, I can't wait. And she made it to the anteroom door, and I stayed sitting at the kitchen nook. I had all the Sunday newspaper headlines, uh, Cooper this, Cooper that, spread out on the table for him and mom opened the door to the ante room and uh, she said Jack where have you been for the last five days what have you been up to how come you never called and dad says God Grace you're on me like a spitfire on a mission smear right when I come through the door I told you I was with Bud which answered a lot of questions he said I'll talk to you later Grace and she disappeared into the back room, and Dad stepped into the kitchen. And I was right where I was when he left, except I had the newspapers spread out. And I immediately tried to make eye contact with him. He looked away from me for a moment, put a big grin on his face. I said, Dad, 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 Dad. And he looked away toward the refrigerator, and he said, Brad, did you hear about the guy that jumped out of the plane with all the money? I said, yeah, it's been on the headlines every day. It's been all over the news. Look at the headlines. Dad looked down at the paper, and then he looked up at me, and we made eye contact. I said, Dad, you did this. You're this Cooper guy, aren't you? I know you did it. You can tell me. I won't rat you off. Dad goes, D.B. Cooper. And then he looks down. And I can barely see his face, and he looks back up, and it's like he's a little bit of another guy. He's got a little bit of a freaked out look in his eye, and he says, come on, man. Here I am, safety officer for my parachute club. I've got a sick wife and eight kids still at home, and you think I'd be crazy enough to pull a stunt like that? And I said, yep. <laughs> and that started it. <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. It's right out of the book. Did you ever talk to Bud about it? About his involvement? No, Bud, we never had any conversations about it whatsoever. Um, Bud, there was a lot of tension that started to build a few years after this, and it accumulated later on with um, some personal problems with Bud and his wife, and it led to eventually to a divorce. But before that, he had an alteration with her, uh, got physical. The police were called. They took him to jail for a night, I think. And he lost his license to fly because of his uh, outburst or whatever. And that very much depressed him. But that was many years after the Cooper hijacking. What I can remember, Bud was the kind of guy, if you knew him, his word was his bond. His handshake was everything. He'd look right into your soul when he'd talk to you. He had a way of looking into your eyes like nobody I don't think I've ever known to this day. 
And all I can remember is at Christmas time, just a month or so after the hijacking, he arrived at my house for, for Christmas festivities that year. And I can remember he walked in behind his family. Aunt Nancy came in dressed beautifully and his little children. And he, of course, came in last and he had to come up through the anteroom. And he looked me right in the eyes and he shook my hand and I said, Merry Christmas, bud. And the look he had in his eyes were vulnerability. You wouldn't rat off your uncle, would you? If we could have spoke, that was exactly what he put into my, into my eyes. And I simply said, Merry Christmas, bud. Everything's fine. Come on in. I just tried to put him at ease. But I already knew that he, that he was in on it. I, I was quite sure of it. <coughs> and I also think that if my dad did a, did a practice jump, and, I, and he did, he told me, that was the one he told me about six months before. That's when I get my lights up. I don't know if I have a bunch of dirt on that windshield. I, uh, I think they used Bud's uh, AT6 fighter because Dad could jump right out of the back of it. They used to use that, that plane at air shows to do stunts. Dad used to jump out. So if he did one practice jump, I think it was done in the AT6. And I think he probably did do one practice jump. Generally, that's the way he was. If he, this wasn't a normal jump. <laughs> he would have done one practice one. I think. I'm pretty sure he would have. Is there anything else? Yeah, you had it planned out. Um, I wanted to talk about Tina Barr. So mm -hmm. you believe that that's where they had selected the drop zone? Yeah, I do. I went down and visited that area. I didn't specifically find Tina's bar. I'm not even sure if it's still there with all the uh, changing of the currents and the and different things that have happened at the hydraulics of the Columbia River. But I guess at that time it was a pretty popular place for people to fish and hang out. Um, the weather was terrible that night. Um, that's the only area I feel in the whole region. I think they chose it for a reason. It was secluded. It was just adjacent to the Columbia River from Portland International Airport. Very familiar area to both Dad and Bud. They had flown and jumped in that area for many, many years, particularly Bud. Yeah, I don't know where else in that whole area they could have chose. It's ideal. And that explains the money find. I think it does. The money find, I believe, was the money that he offered the stewardess before he jumped, and she wouldn't take it. He said, I'd like you to have this. It's Thanksgiving. I've put you through a lot. Probably told her it was necessary, and I also think he connected with her. He had a daughter exactly her age. Not exactly, but I mean to, to the year. Uh, my oldest sister uh, was her age, about her same height, weight. Uh, he might have had a little bit of a connection with her. Told her it was very necessary that, that he did what he did. But I do believe that's the money that he offered the stewardess. She wouldn't take it. By lore, they say, he told her then to get into the cockpit, that he would be jumping shortly and that the pilot would know when. And he asked her to dim the lights between the first class section and the coach section where he was at. And she had watched him pull that 
three or four bundles of cash out of the main bag of money, which he then tied up like he had no intention on going back into it. Like it was a done deal, he offered it to her a couple of times. He said, I'd like you to have it. It's Thanksgiving. You can buy a new house with it. You have to wait a while. It's unmarked. I've checked it. He went through all that with her. She said, I won't take it. I'm honest. No way. At that point, Dad would have known that's the way she was, and he would have switched. He then told her, he dropped the money, I guess, in front of the money bag. He said, I don't want it either. What do you want me to do with it? Sounds exactly like something my dad would say. Um, and then when she proceeded to go into first class section, I guess she dimmed the lights, but she peeked and she saw dad pick up the money, put it back into his trench coat, zip the trench coat up, put on the one parachute, that was the backpack unit that he jumped with, and then he apparently used <clears throat> the shroud lines from one of the bad parachutes that he had been given earlier to tie the money bag onto the front of him. Again, the money that he offered her is in his trench coat. She saw him put it in there in a side pocket inside of his Canadian trench coat. And then he saw her and he said, I told you about the time he got everything together. He saw her. He said, I told you to get in the cockpit. Do it now. So she did. And she closed the door of the cockpit. The pilot asked her, if is that you, Tina? And she said, yes. Oh, Tina, do you think he's going to jump? She said, I think he's going to do it. Apparently, he was listening in on the intercom system, according to Jeffrey Gray's book. He said, you bet I'm going to do it. Doesn't surprise me. He knew everything about that jet. And, uh, and then uh, the pilot uh, was, he said that the air stairs weren't quite down, but the indicator light indicated that the air stairs were in a locked position, which tells me he was early to do the jump. He had a little bit of time to kill. He wasn't quite to where he needed to be. He was probably looking for a, for a signal from Bud, but it wasn't there yet. So he got on the intercom and told the pilot to kill a little, I think to kill a little bit of time. He said, Commander, you're going a bit fast. If you could lower the air stairs, lower the airspeed a bit, I'll be out of your hair. Apparently the co-pilot was flying the plane. I think his name was Ratazak. Uh -huh. And I, apparently he had said, I'm already lowering the airspeed. They waited a few moments, nothing happened, and then all of a sudden they felt the trim of the airline or the airliner as Dad jumped. At that moment, they looked down and they saw the lights of Portland coming along, and then the lights of Portland disappeared, and then they started seeing lights from the next city. So popular lore, I guess, says that he jumped right about over the Columbia River, the prevailing winds more or less went northwest that night, I guess heading toward Japan uh, or sort of toward the left corner of the state, toward the Olympic Peninsula, I guess, the wind conditions, so that would have put him right about Tina's bar. When he jumped and when he was trying to get as close as he could to a target, and that went from time to time throughout the years, although mostly right before he in the logbook before he did the jump, he made a series of jumps in windy conditions. Very rare for him to put a target out, but apparently he was putting the target out. And he was coming in to within 100 to 120 feet, according to his logbooks, of the target. Day or night, when Dad jumped, if there was a target of any kind, he generally came down pretty close to it. That was my own observation. 
from seeing him jump probably as many as 60 or 70 times throughout the years. Well, he was an expert parachutist. He was very good. Rigger, um, instructor, he could pack your chute, he could train you, he could jump with you, he could fly the jump plane if somebody else took you out the door, another jumper or whatever. He was qualified to do all that. One thing I think is really interesting about your father being born in Canada or being Canadian is there was a French-Canadian comic book called Dan Cooper about a skydiving superhero uh, test pilot. I heard about that. I've seen pictures of that comic book. And so it's interesting that the hijacker picked the name Dan Cooper. Yeah, it is. And it, there might be another coincidence that it also means DBC, DB Cooper, also stands for Dad and Bud Collins. And that might be a roundabout way that my dad tried to put his mark on this, maybe for me, uh, for, for the future. I don't want to dwell in that. It could have just been a coincidence. But, you know, it was Dad and Bud Collins that did that stunt uh, called the uh, D.B. Cooper event. But um, it could be a D.B. Cooper comic book. Uh, There might be something to that. Dad might have run across a copy of that in an airport, bought a copy of it. it I never saw that one laying around the house. (laughs) He loved to read. He was a voracious reader. And many, a lot of the stuff he read was about aviation. Uh, skydiving, history, uh, militaries, and things like that. But I never saw a Dan Cooper comic book around the house. But it is possible. I mean, it is. It's an interesting connection or, yeah, or coincidence. It yeah, it is. But uh, Dad was Canadian, but he didn't speak French. He was not French-Canadian. So I don't know if that means anything. And your family had a little bit of money trouble pre-1971, and post-1971, no money trouble. It seemed like excess cash around the house. Skies were pretty blue from that point on, but he didn't start spending money for a while. The first thing he did is he had painters come out and start painting the house a little bit here and there and put up scaffolding. And You know, we had a two-story house, so he started scraping painting the house. And the following summer, it was landscaping, and pretty soon it was structural stuff and rockeries and you know uh, new fences around the property and i think he spent four or five thousand dollars back in those days but that was only the beginning he started extensive traveling he took my mother to england couldn't even afford a phone call to england in 1970 but by 1970 uh, summer of 72 uh, he took my mother back to great britain on the airliner to see to see her family and they spent a week and a half there visited all of my mother's family while they were still alive and uh, and uh, she hadn't been back there since World War II so then he took her back again in 73 and then he took my mother to Australia to see Australia to see her extended family down there so yeah there was a lot of traveling on jets and uh, then he bought a brand new car in 19 during the gas crisis, 1973, he came home with a Buick Riviera that he paid cash for. He told me right when he showed it to me, he'd 
paid cash for it. It was only $4,500 for a brand new Buick Riviera. But he didn't have $4,500 in 1970. No. No, it was just one of many things that he he had the money for. But. Didn't he also buy a boat and a plane? Yeah, he bought a boat, but that was a modest boat. Um, 15 foot fiber form. It's in my book. Um, and then he and then he went out to the parachute center and started. Uh, they started in on a newer airplane that, that uh, he and he told me he was a silent partner. At the time, I guess he didn't want to alarm me and tell me he had a lot of money into it. But he told me, "Oh, I," he says, "I'm a silent partner. I, I'll get my money back when I sell it later. When we sell the plane, I'll get my money back." He said. So I was pretty persistent. I said, how much money do you have in it? And I think I thought $100 was a lot of money back in those days. But he said, oh, I got about $1,500 into that plane. But I'll get all my money back when, when, when we sell the plane. Well, I went out years and years later when I was doing research for my book. Talked to Jesse Farrington from Kapowison Parachute Center out in Shelton, Washington. Uh, her and her husband, Jeff, and her son um, own the Parachute Center. And uh, and she knew my dad quite well. As a matter of fact, I jumped once. She was my jump master. And I started to tell her, when I sat down with her, I told her I was writing a book about aviation that had to do with dad and bud. I didn't want to start off by telling her I thought my dad was Cooper. <laughs> but she said, by the way, my daddy had a whole bunch of the other jumpers, or some of the other jumpers, always thought that your daddy was D.B. Cooper. <laughs> and I said, well, bingo, he was, and that's what I'm writing about. So I asked her, I said, how much money did Dad have in that? I had a feeling he had more money into that plane, the newer jump plane, and they bought that in, I believe, in the summer of 72. Dad said he was a silent partner. Um... <clears throat> Anyway, she said, your daddy had more like $25,000 into that plane. So that was money that my mother probably didn't even know about at the time. But he had it. It's a lot of money for a man who has eight kids. Eight children, yes. He had a new car every four or five years for the rest of his life. Sometimes he'd lease them, but usually he bought them. And... He was also an extremely generous man to his family, to his friends, and to his church. He donated a lot of money to charities throughout the years, and he just thought it was important to do that. Um, yeah, when we add up all the money, it's it's around 200000 It might be more or slightly less, but when we... When I, put, I put my mental calculator to it a few different times it, it accounts for money that he just flat out never had and so unless he was out robbing banks on a regular basis and getting away with it then he must have been Cooper he knew Ted Mayfield he knew, he knew Ted Mayfield quite well um, Ted Mayfield was a practical joker uh, a lot of people knew him it wasn't much for him to jump up on a table when he was a young man and drop his drawers just to get a laugh at dinner time or something. But mostly he was a harmless guy. But he was a bit of a rough character. Dad and Bud knew him quite well. And um, 
all of them were pilots and all of them were skydivers. And there's another guy too named Ralph Himmelsbach. There's a good chance that Ralph Himmelsbach knew of Ted Mayfield. And I was going to ask you some questions about Ralph Himmelsbach. I'd sure like to meet him sometime if he's still with us. I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, he was the, the FBI agent yeah. um, who handled the case early on. Mm -hmm. Lived in Battleground, same town as Bud. Oh, really? Yeah, which must have contributed to Bud's paranoia. When the main FBI tracker is living in his town. So, yeah, that might have had some bearing in him. They both owned AT-6 uh, World War II fighter trainers. And Bud flew in the Reno Air Races. I think one year he came in seventh in the Reno AT-6 Air Races. There's a good likelihood that Ralph Himmelsbach was also in on that, on uh, that flying. And there's a reasonably good chance that Ralph and Bud knew each other. That's why I'd like to talk to Mr. Himmelsbach. They lived in the same town, they flew the same plane. There's a good likelihood that they knew each other. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. Both pilots. And, yeah. And you think your father buried the, the chute and the pack from the heist at a drop zone that Ted Mayfield had. Yeah, I can't go through it all right at the moment, but in my book, I probably donated a whole chapter to that. Dad told me in a roundabout way, years later, where a hole was dug behind one of Ted Mayfield's parachute centers. He tried to, to tell me in a kind of a joking way that a girl was killed uh, parachuting at Ted's parachute center skydiving and Ted didn't want any trouble with the with the authorities so he, he asked a couple of his handy people that were around to um, to dig a hole behind the parachute center and, and put her body in there and make sure there's no identification if there is uh, send it to her parents so at least they'll know something happened to her some baloney like that and I told him it come on dad he was almost laughing. He says, you believe that? I said, no. It sounds like a bunch of baloney to me. He said, I know. The part about the girl does. <laughs> he was laughing, literally. He said, that sounds like baloney, doesn't it? I said, yeah. He said, but the part about the hole is true. And don't forget, he said, everything went into that hole. The parachute, the harness, anything she was carrying. But he was really, I think, telling me where the hole was dug, where they got rid of the chute, the harness, and everything Dad was wearing. Probably right down to whatever bag that the money was put into that night. It's probably all in one spot. And I think with a little effort, we can locate it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Get a metal detector and find out where his parachute centers were. Many times they're still there. It's not like they take parachute centers and get rid of them and put apartment complexes around them. Airports remain airports, parachute centers many times, right where they were 20 or 30 years before. And you have seven brothers and sisters. I had nine, my mom and dad had nine children originally. One had died, my sister Wendy, back in 1958. She died of a, a childhood pneumonia. She was only a couple of months old. It was devastating to my mother, and after that, they raised eight children. 
And how do your brothers and sisters feel about your dad, Jack, being D.B. Cooper? It's a mixed bag. Um, my dad didn't want them to know about him doing this. So through the years, they probably thought about it and speculated it. Most of them were either in the military or living somewhere else, the older ones at the time. But there was three or four of us younger ones that were there. It's a mixed bag. My youngest brother thinks he probably did it. My oldest brother doesn't want to believe he did it. But any, any of them know that he was definitely capable of doing it. And they do not have an explanation for all the money. Or, they, or they, his whereabouts and, during the hijacking. And they know I'll never give up because I know he did it. <laughs> so I'll just keep talking about it. If he's gone during the hijacking, then there's no evidence against it. You can't say, oh, well, he didn't do it because I know Jack and he was at the house for Thanksgiving. No, he was smarter than that. He got rid of he got rid of the older ones. He made sure they weren't around. Uh, they were around, oh, six months a year before. They were, most of them were around, but one by one, they all disappeared. He wanted it that way. He didn't want them all around when he did this. My younger brother and sister were too young to know what was going on. I was 14 or 15, and I didn't know what was going on. And Dad just got a kick out of that part of it. Every time we would start to talk about it, and we did from time to time throughout the years, Dad would get a big, giant grin on his face. He'd fire up a cigarette, and he'd say, D.B. Cooper, <laughs> gee, one time we were driving over the Columbia River going down to Oregon. Dad brought it up. He says, what do you suppose ever happened to D.B. Cooper? Do you think he drowned in the, in the river here? I said, no, he didn't drown in the river here. He's sitting right next to me as I'm driving the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had stories to tell, and they're all in the book. And, and any, anything that he ever brought up about Cooper to me, I put it in the book. And the nicest thing that he did is not long before he passed away, out of the blue, he brought it up. And in fact, it was the last, second to the last visit when he was alive. And uh, before he passed away. And anyway, it's in the book. I don't want to go into it now, but, you know, it just glancingly said I was Cooper. And I said I knew it all along. You know, doesn't surprise me a bit. Many, many years later. The uh, Cooper Vortex, have you heard that term before? Yes, I have. Um, uh, the fellow uh, at the symposium, the D.B. Cooper Symposium. Uh, the fellow's name is on the tip of my tongue. It's uh, what is his name? Jeffrey Gray. No, he mentions it in the book. Jeffrey Gray does, but it was another guy that came up with that vortex. Tom. Oh, Tom K. Tom K. Yeah, and I know that's not a real name. It's some kind of a fictitious name that he uses on his website. But yeah. Yeah, he, he spoke about that. Were you at the symposium? I wasn't. Oh, okay. But the, the Cooper Vortex they used to refer to the community of Cooper sleuths or, or people who have confessed to being D.B. Cooper or the relative. <laughs> and it tends to be a pretty crazy place to be in, in the Cooper Vortex. Sure. Um, you know, with a lot happening on the Internet as far as 
threats and accusations it's crazy. and arguing and bickering. Have you experienced any of that? No, very little. It does entice emotion in people. I promote my book from time to time. I don't mention it to everybody, but if I'm at the rec center and I'm getting to know somebody and they say, what's new? I'll, I'll tell them and I'll talk about it. And every once in a while I get somebody that's real negative, but usually people love the Cooper lore. They think for once there's a folk hero that got away with something. Most people are pretty excited about it. The fact that, uh, that they've watched TV for the last 40 years and they've been talking about this on the History Channel, on Travel Channel, on cable. You see it late at night sometimes or just before you go to sleep in a motel room. We've all wondered about, I mean, we, um, as Americans, as, as human beings, we would all wonder what would happen, what became of the guy after he jumped. Did he live? If he had died, I can honestly tell you, they would have found him. They would have found money splattered all over the river or all over the hillside. It just wouldn't be something that if he'd perished, he'd have gotten away with. So most people assume that he got away with it. Well, I've got good news. He did. And he wasn't a bad guy. He didn't run like some maniac. He didn't inhabit casinos like some people have. I mean, other than walk through one and get a cup of coffee. He wasn't a big gambler. Um, but, you know, uh, everybody's always wondered whatever happened to D.B. Cooper. Well, I can tell you, he lived and he came home. And he lived his life out, and he was sly about it, and he never got caught. Every once in a while, somebody doesn't get caught. <laughs> he was one of those people. The only unsolved U.S. skyjacking. Well, they'd solve it if they'd read my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we solved it. Yeah. Um, it goes back to Ariel, the Ariel Tavern, the Ariel store. Post office, whatever it is, meeting place. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. Those guys said they'd seen ever seen and then heard. Well, one of the brothers, anyway, said he'd seen and heard every theory you could possibly imagine. In the 20 years we've had this establishment or more, you, we've heard it all. But when he saw my photos and heard some of my stories, he said, I've never seen anything that looks like this. This looks like the real deal. You know, and that's good enough. Maybe it will never quite get solved, but I do tend to think that within the next year or two, it will get solved. I just think there's more evidence out there we haven't uncovered yet. When we do, it'll get solved, and that's fine with me. I can live with it the way it is. But you think it will get solved in the next few years? I think that, yeah, I think somebody's going to nail it. I think they're going to dig up something. Um, or they're going to find some connection where all they have to really do is, the FBI is just revive it, look into his records on his home mortgage, find out when he paid off his taxes. Try to figure out where, where else he got the money. He didn't get it in the insurance business. <laughs> he was good, but he wasn't that good. His renewals didn't pay off till. 30 years after he left Franklin, or 30 years after he started with Franklin. So he didn't even start seeing renewals from the insurance business for another 10 years after the Cooper hijacking. 
So there's no explaining it. His commissions didn't didn't earn him anywhere near that kind of money. So yeah, the money trail is usually usually the thing that would solve something like this. I would think. Yeah, and then the last time you spoke to your dad, um, he admitted again to being D.B. Cooper. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's in the book. I'm going to start talking about my dad. I'll start crying. You don't want that. Oh, I understand. I when I talk about For sure. Too much. Especially around that time. Yeah. I wish I could give you more. I mean, I wish I could produce one of the $20 bills or something. You're sitting in here with this microphone. Yeah, but he, sp- he spent it. He bought boats and cars and planes. <laughs> yes, he did. He did a lot of traveling with that money. It's a good way to spend it. Spend it outside the country. Yep. Yeah. Funny thing was, one of the one of the things that I inherited from him, and you, I think anybody that hears this will probably crack up, he had... An Indiana Jones hat. It's pristine. It's never even been worn. It didn't quite fit him. He bought it, I think, for himself and or just bought it because he wanted to have it. It's an authentic Indiana Jones hat. <laughs> I don't know how to explain that anymore. But anyway, yeah, he was an adventurer. I think he admired that. He liked that he liked that series. He used to like to watch Indiana Jones. But there's no clue there. It just happens to be something they left behind. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. So is there anything you want to recommend to people other than to check out your book? Yeah, read every other book first, then read mine, then you'll know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones are very embellished. Wishful thinking at best. No story, no people, no plot. I do really enjoy Jeffrey Gray's book. <clears throat> it's uh, it's kind of like a newer. I guess you could describe it as a newer. It's not exactly accurate, but it really puts a nice show on for you. It tells you a lot about the crime. And I do like the other book that I recommend in my book. <coughs> what really happened? Oh, the Max Gunther book. Max Gunther. Because he does a great description of my dad on the plane. Conversations that took place. And very much my dad. Very much. Uh, It was like I was on the plane hearing him talk. I feel like telling him to shut up. You know, some of the things he said. On the plane. Uh, If I was on the plane, I'd say, Dad, will you quit that? You know, I mean, it was just... Yeah, he scared the bejeebas out of the stewardess. According to the lore, at one point the jet took off from Seattle and it was gaining altitude, heading heading toward Portland, going up a little ways anyway for the hop. He asked her to come and do me a favor. She said, what is it? He said, would you please sit down next to me, take a load off. I've been really hard on you tonight. So she did. She plunked down next to him. Dad is sitting in the middle seat on the left-hand side. Plane's gaining some altitude. Dad's staring straight ahead. And she says, Mr. Cooper, do you mind if I ask you a question? And Dad says, "Uh uh-huh, what is it? 
And she looked over and she said, I see you have three parachutes left. You don't plan on taking anybody with you when you jump, do you? Dad nodded his head real affirmative. He looked her right in the eye and he touched her on the shoulder and he said, perhaps you. And she said, oh no. And he said, no, I'm just kidding you. He says, I wouldn't do that to you. I'm just pulling your leg. <laughs> That's exactly what my dad would have done. When I heard that, I laughed my head off. But he said to her, I do need a little help. Could you show me how these air stairs work? And he walked her over to him and opened the door. And She said, you press that button and that stairs will go down and we'll be sucked out. And he said, oh... I won't let that happen. I won't, don't worry about that. He reached down and grabbed a, some of the money out of the bag of money that he had all tied up. And he untied it and he took out three bundles of the cash and offered it to her. And we have the rest of that on here, but it was around that time that he did that to her. And it, that really struck me as comical. That's exactly the kind of thing Dad liked to do to somebody. Just give him a good shot of adrenaline just for three or four seconds so they just get a little idea of what jumping was all about. But as far as throwing her out or taking her with her, that wasn't dad. He wasn't that kind of a man. He wouldn't have done that. No, and <laughs> that's one of the reasons everyone really likes the story is no one was hurt. No, I mean, I, you can argue that there was some stress put on the stewardess and the pilots, but no one was hurt. Yeah, he made them fly. They were flying circles around Puget Sound very tight circles. When you're doing it in a Piper, and I was in the back, that's one thing. When you're doing it in a jet airliner, those pilots for the first half hour or so had to turn that plane physically pretty hard to keep it doing those turns. Although I do feel they were probably above the, the height of the mountain, so I don't think they were going to run into the mountain ranges or anything. But at some point they came to Dad and asked if they could move the plane further north up toward the Strait of Juan de Fuca where they could fly bigger circles. Dad said, no problem, certainly, go ahead and do that. So he had him fly the plane. He, he took the passengers on a flight that they probably never forgot. I imagine every one of them still thinks about it every single day, if they're still alive. But no, Dad never wanted to hurt anybody. If anything, he wanted management to turn around and put in security, which is not just because of what he did, but probably because they embarrassed, dad and bud embarrassed the airline, then they decided to start spending some real money on security. And that's what evolved after a period of time. You'd go into airports and just like today, there was security, they had metal detectors, they'd search you and uh, for a while, that's what they did, and then, of course, they laxed off as years went by, but, yeah, they did. After a while, they brought in the security, just like they said they were going to. They even installed the Cooper Vane, so the rear stairs couldn't be lowered in flight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you kick real hard, then you might get them down. No, I'm just kidding. You're right. They did that. There's a lot of lore that goes with this story. It's a great story. It really is. And... The fact that your dad was D.B. Cooper has got to be just so amazing and interesting. When I was a kid, it, 
It definitely got me excited, that's for sure. Did you ever tell any of your friends? No. no I, I mean, did. I can't imagine being 15, 16 years old and knowing that my dad was D.B. Cooper. Well, I've got one and, friend that knew my dad quite well, and I didn't tell him until a few years ago. He's sitting on the fence. He definitely thinks dad and bud could have done it, but he wants to see more proof. That's fine. I understand that. Um, but I didn't even tell him until a few years ago. I said, you're going to find this to be a big surprise. I held off all afternoon with him. I took him out to the graveyard. We took pictures of Dad and Bud's grave. I decided that I might put a, a picture of his grave in the book. I wasn't sure at the time. Um, but anyway, he helped me with that. And then we went, and I took him, I took him out to buy him fish and chips. And we sat down after ordering at Ivers. And I said, Clive, you're never going to believe this probably, but I need to tell you what, what I'm doing. I'm taking pictures of Dad and Bud's grave to go in a book. I'm writing a story and a book about Dad being T.B. Cooper. I told him about it, and he said, wow, whoa. After he thought about it for a little while, he said, God, man, that it's possible, yeah, Jack, you know. But So that's kind of how that went, yeah. Very, very fun. To see the people, the reaction of people. I do like talking about the story. Yes, I very much do. It's a, Like I said, it's a great story. It's amazing. Yeah. There'll be no more sequels. I'm not going to write another book about D.B. Cooper or my father or anything. Cause I couldn't think of any more material to put in there. I, I tried to give it my best shot so people would get a good understanding of how he did it and why he did it. And that he was very capable of doing it. And then what happened to him and all the money? His mother came down from Canada. She started laundering the money. She called herself Ma Barker. It was like a nickname. And uh, she was in her 60s when Dad did it. And every time she came down from Canada, she had a nicer automobile. And she'd go back up, and she kept moving from one town to the next. Um... There's a highway just up above, across the border that runs east-west uh, from from the Canadian Rockies all the way to the Pacific Northwest uh, uh, part of Canada. Towns like Burnaby and Chilliwack and uh, Abbotsford uh, were towns that she moved to real often. Like she'd move into a town and then a month later moved to the next town, and a couple months later, the next town. Dad told me about it. <clears throat> She's coming down across the border, and she said she goes back, but every time she goes back, she goes back to a different town, and I said, why? Because I asked why a lot in those days. And he said, oh, she gets tired of one town, and then she just decides to move to the next one, and she gets out of that one, and she goes to the next one. But I really think what she was doing is she was coming down to the States, taking money back up there, which was unmarked and put in a Canadian bank account and then move it to the next bank and just shuffle the money around and then eventually withdraw it and bring it back down as American money or as Canadian money. I don't know exactly how she would have done that, but I don't think there was too many safeguards. And I don't think they would have suspected a 65-year-old lady walking into a bank with ten or 12,000 American dollars there was other money mixed up with those 20s, um, then I don't think it would have been a problem whatsoever. 
So you think he recruited his mom to help him launder the money or clean the money? Yes, I do. Him and Bud. Yeah. Well, either that or the insurance business. He was In the book, I point out he was capable in those days of laundering the money through insurance companies. They were like banks, but they didn't have the scrutiny. They weren't looking for serial numbers. I don't know how he would have done that, but I suppose it could have been done. Um, was his mom the kind of gal that would have done something like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, she'd take a risk, just like her son. Um, she apparently used to smuggle cigarettes. She got caught one time. They found a cigarette sticking up in her brassiere or something in a cleavage. <laughs> so they dragged her into an office. I guess she gave them so much trouble. I don't think they wanted to mess with her after that. Just let her smuggle her cigarettes, you know. <laughs> um, so, but, no, I don't think it would have been a problem at all. I, As far as getting the money across the border, I, there wasn't much security in those days. They didn't search people. I went across the border. Dad had dual citizenship. He was a born a Canadian, but he had U.S. citizenship, too. And we used to go across the border. They never searched the car. So I guess they do now once in a while, but back in those days, it was never a problem. I don't think it would have been a problem for her. Boy, that's crazy. Having your mom launder money for you. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for you, Brad? Oh, I don't know. I'm just living life and enjoying it and talking to you tonight about the book. You never know what's next. No, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if, like you said, the case is solved in the next few years. I don't know if they find out some information and it points to your dad. I think they will. Usually things like this eventually get uncovered. There was a mountain climber on Mount Everest who went missing many, many years ago, back in 1924. His name was Mallory. He was an Irishman. Last they saw him, he was right up toward the top of Mount Everest, getting ready to make a summit attempt in 1924, and then a big storm overtook the mountain for a couple of days. Mallory disappeared. And it took until the late 1970s somebody finally spotted his body. Apparently he's still climbing. <laughs> Ice axe stuck into the side of the mountain. Wearing the clothes that he was wearing in 1924. They found Mallory. So they can find Mallory on Everest. They can find out. In, their, in anybody's hearts, they can do enough research. They'll probably have a pretty good idea that my dad did it. And until they find real solid, absolute proof, I don't know what to tell them. Tough luck. Would you rather it be solved and confirmed that it's your dad, or would you rather it remain unsolved and you know that it was your dad? Either way is fine with me. <laughs> Either way is fine. All right. Well, people can pick up your book at Amazon. Yeah, I think that's where all books are picked up these days. My father was D.B. Cooper. That's the title. <laughs> All right, thank you, Brad. I really appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully next time we'll do this, we'll be able to see what each other's faces look like. No? <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex with Bradley Collins. Be sure to pick up a copy of his book, My Father Was D.B. Cooper. There's a link to it in the show notes. If you have comments, questions, or inside information, you can reach out to us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex or email at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Bradley Collins for talking to me and thank you to Russell Colbert for putting this together. We'll have our next episode up for you in two weeks. We hope you'll keep listening. Thank you.